This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. Today in episode 10, we explore harvest aids with Dr. Drew Lyon of Washington State University. We also get an update on current pulse markets from Kevin Buxa of Halo Commodity Company based in Fargo, North Dakota. If you're new to Pulse Crops, they include crops such as field peas, chickpeas, and lentils. This show focuses on some Pulse Crop farmers throughout the growing season and dives into the research that's helping them through some of the challenges they face. We'll also talk to a number of industry stakeholders along the way. We begin today's episode, though, with an update on the fundamentals driving Pulse Markets. Kevin Buxa of Halo Commodity Company joins us. Based in Fargo, North Dakota, Kevin purchases commodities on farm in North Dakota and Montana and sells to various processors and handlers throughout the region. He also runs a standalone third-party trucking company, which enables him to expand his trading to a larger geography and more markets. For Pulses, his primary focus is on peas and lentils. I asked Kevin to start off here by just giving us a general update on current Pulse market conditions. We should really talk about peas, lentils, because it seems like they're two different animals right now. Yellow peas, for example, we have seen some demand destruction over the course of the last couple of years in the pet food industry. And what we've seen, obviously, with international trade is more product flowing out of Canada going to India because tariffs are less out of Canada than they are out of the U.S., Now, that said, over the last three, four, five months, the USDA PL 4A programs have been more robust, I think, and and this is more theory than it is fact, but there has been a correlation with some of the CARES program and some some more of the government spending with increased interest in food aid programs. There was just another large tender announced here last week for yellow peas that will be, will be awarded, I think, this evening. So over the course of the last, I don't know how long the PL480 program has been in place, but um, over the course of the last 10, 15 years, let's say, it has been a big driver of yellow pea demand stateside. In Canada, not so much. U.S. origin yellow peas are the only or U.S. origin product, whether that be yellow peas or pinto beans or lentils or soybean oil. You know, the USDA tenders for a lot of commodities in food aid programs throughout the country. Yellow peas tend to be the biggest winner in the pulse world. So we've seen that activity increase here over the last four to six months, call it. And I think it's somewhat correlated with heavier government spending. Government is trying to push money everywhere and anywhere through COVID here. And spending has obviously increased across all aspects of the economy. And I think these food aid programs are just another avenue to support on-farm crop prices as well. I think that's a that's a key driver. So we'll see. I, I anticipate that that will continue to be strong, a strong source of demand going out into the winter. But I think what you're seeing now, the markets have been depressed by a combination of harvest pressure and then a lack of export demand through the summer. And I think we've, we've gotten a little bit of export demand back. And, and once we start to wrap 
up harvest here and the combines get put away or put onto different crops and peas get thrown away into the bin. I think we'll see this market come back a little bit as we build demand after we get rid of the supply crunch on us right now. It's not uncommon to see markets struggle during the harvest time period, especially in the pea market. You just do not have the built up storage capacity and the well-defined carry structure like you do with corn and wheat and soybeans. So what tends to happen is processors will go out and forward contract and secure the bushels they need for harvest shipment. And then any extra bushels that get thrown into the market need to be sucked up and shipped out. Generally, you don't see a lot of commercial elevators or commercial grain handlers pile up a bunch of peas like they would corn or wheat. There just isn't the storage return and there isn't the defined storage return, meaning that there's no futures mechanism to go out and hedge the board and sell a carry. So in turn, what you see, generally speaking, is prices slump right gut slot harvest and then post-harvest see a recovery. And, and it's probably more pronounced in yellow peas than it is in any of the other crops in the, in the pulse world. But yellow peas, we see that year in, year out. This year, it's maybe a little more pronounced because we're, we're seeing such low prices off the combine for, for producers. But I anticipate that we'll, we'll come back to a steadier market once we get through harvest here into September, October. So as you heard there, that was mostly focused on yellow pea markets, which he said tend to be the big winners of these food aid tenders from the U.S. government. I was curious to hear more, though, about how these food aid tenders work. This was a government PO480 food aid tender. So it's an export tender. Um, so our company here, we are not set up with USDA directly. Um, we will offer product to companies that are set up with the USDA to, to participate in these solicitations. So we almost work as a purchasing arm for a lot of these USDA vendors. So the way the process works, the, the government will announce 10,000 tons of split yellow, number two split yellow peas to be awarded for shipment to Sudan or Ethiopia. This summer we participated. There was a there was a large lentil tender, number three grade lentil tender. So the government comes out with a, a solicitation for X amount of tonnage. The companies that are able to bid with the USDA or procure offers for the product and then place their offer in with the USDA and in a sense, the lowest offer gets awarded. Now, the USDA typically doesn't offer on larger size tenders. They typically don't offer one contract to one sole supplier. So they tend to spread out the, the, the awards to, it depends on the size of the, of the contract, of course, but they tend to spread out the awards to multiple different uh, companies participating. You know, and I think that's somewhat of a safety play to hedge themselves against logistical issues. If a facility would have, were to break down during the um, processing process, uh, that way they have their kind of their their 
I's dotted and their T's crossed and they don't have all all their bushels contracted with one facility. So yeah, then the the offers are submitted and essentially the USDA will will choose the the awardees and then off to work uh, doing the processing. I think that's an interesting look at one major driver of pulse crop demand here in the U.S. But likely, most farmers aren't going to directly participate in these food aid tenders. So what does Kevin recommend to farmers he works with when it comes to marketing their pulses? Every farmer is different. Let me let me first caveat it by saying that, you know, the, the storage needs and the cash flow needs and just the the risk appetite that each farmer has is going to be completely different for each person. Given the market structure being what it is the last three, four years where we've been relatively supply ridden with these markets that we've been living on limited on exports and especially with peas and, and to a certain extent lentils as well. We found that the best opportunities are looking out at forward contracting, especially forward contracting where you can get an active God clause, give you a little more comfortability with selling something that a hailstorm's just not going to wipe you out and you're going to have to buy it in, right? So going out on the forward curve and doing a forward contract might not feel the best when you're in the moment, but it sure beats the snot out of selling $4 peas off the combine because you don't have a, you don't have a market for them at the time, right? So that I would say in general, that's, I, I hate to call it a mistake because, you know, there has been years where guys without a forward contract have done better. Right. But I, I just take a, a risk balanced approach where if you're making a forward contract at a level that's profitable or close to profitable and the market goes up, right. Let's say you sell 50% of your expected production and the market goes up. Isn't that a good problem to have? Right. In, in my opinion, you didn't make a mistake by contracting. You managed your risk so that you had surety that you were going to get some of your product moved. And at the same time, the market went up in your favor and you could sell the rest of your crop at even better prices, right? So I, I try to instill that with guys to, to take a more of a balanced approach to marketing and and extend your marketing window from 12 months to 18 to 24 months. With pulses, it's tough to go out a year in advance, um, but with certain crops, you can. And by doing so, generally, you're getting a better price, even though it might not feel as good to sell it for six, eight months down the road. As Kevin looks ahead, he sees more opportunities for farmers to capture protein premiums by growing certain varieties. A bigger and bigger item the last few years is some of these protein markets. Um, And we haven't participated with a lot of them. But like you were talking about with, or like we were talking about with um, some of the, the food protein, well, some of the animal protein buyers will pay premiums for higher protein peas. And you're seeing that start to infiltrate up in Canada and and down here in the States where certain varieties are marketed as higher protein and buyers will actually pay a premium for. 
So that's something for guys to think about going forward and find a balance between seed costs and ultimate yield goals. And if there's a higher protein variety that you have access to that might fit a good spot in your location on your farm and might yield as well as the variety you're planting now, I think guys should start to look at some of those just to expand your marketing options in the future. Because as we talked about with some of these protein markets becoming bigger and bigger and and requiring greater volumes as we go forward, that might be something that that develops into almost a two-tiered type market. And it it sort of almost is already, um, but a two-tiered market in a sense where your low protein peas will trade at X value and your higher protein, 24, 25 protein P will trade at X value plus 50 cents or, or 25 cents. So that might be an option for guys just looking out into the future if you haven't already to take a look at some of those varieties and, and see how they fit in your rotation. And then you got to find a balance between if there's a yield drag associated with it, are you netting out a positive return growing a higher, higher protein variety versus growing a high yielding variety? So, you know, that's a, that's a decision or farm level decision that everybody has to make. But I think it's, it's certainly something that guys should be looking at um, before going into into making their planting decisions. Thanks to Kevin Bucks of Halo Commodity Company for providing us a great Pulse Market update there and some outstanding marketing advice as well. We turn our attention now to our featured topic, which is harvest. Pulses are indeterminate crops, which means they'll continue to grow and flower until they reach some sort of stress, such as lack of moisture, high temperatures, nutrient deficiency, something like that. However, harvest timing is critical to optimize for both yield and quality, so growers often desiccate their crops in preparation of harvest. Here to talk about this process and the types of available harvest aids is Dr. Drew Lyon. Drew is a professor and the endowed chair of Small Grains Extension and Research for Weed Science at Washington State University in Pullman. Prior to moving to Washington in 2012, he spent 22 years as the dryland cropping systems specialist at the University of Nebraska, uh, their Panhandle Research and Extension Center in Scotts Bluff. His endowment is from the Washington Grain Commission, so he spends a lot of his time with wheat growers, but most of them also include pulses in their rotations. I started off our conversation by asking him, just generally speaking, what are some of the big challenges that growers are facing when it comes to pulses in the region? Well, just the dearth of uh, good products labeled in pulse crops. You know, it's not a, they're not a major crop in the country. So chemical com- companies don't see the profitability, I guess, to get a lot of different things labeled in them. They also tend to be a little higher value, maybe than some things like soybean. And so there's, and they're a little more susceptible to injury. So there's a little uh, more risk aversion for getting some things labeled in pulse crops. So there's just not a lot of good products. And then the soil applied products, one of the struggles they have is you put it on and then we're starting to, as you move into the spring, we're getting drier and drier. And if you don't get the moisture to activate the herbicide, then the the soil applied herbicide doesn't work so well. And so then they're they're really in trouble. <laughs> Come harvest time, they might have a lot of weeds out there that cause problems with harvest. And that's why they took turn to harvest aid treatments to try to knock those back so they can actually harvest them. 
They're not particularly competitive crops, particularly something like a lentil. Doesn't grow very tall, isn't real competitive. So if you don't have good herbicide activity out of your soil applied herbicides, you're really struggling with weed control after that. Now, obviously, these weeds are a problem. I mean, just in the sheer fact that they compete with the pulse crops for things like sunlight, water, and nutrients. But they also get to be a problem when it comes time for harvest. If you don't control the weeds early, then they're there and they're green when you go out to cut your crop. So if you have a lot of weeds and they're growing well in the crop and your crop's getting ready to harvest, but your weeds are still green and and lush, you're going to have those harvest issues. In addition, you don't want those weeds because they're robbing your crop of yield, right? They're taking resources from the yield. But a harvest aid isn't going to help with that. The harvest aid is just going to help you dry them down so that you can cut them and that you can take them into the combine without plugging your combine. So this is a big reason why it's necessary to desiccate a pulse crop, which in turn is why we're doing this episode. But it's not the only reason. There's actually probably two reasons. A major one is weeds. So the weeds are growing, they're green. If you try to take a combine out there and harvest it, it gunks up the works. It messes up your cutter bar. It, it gets too much green material going through your combine. You can plug the combine. Uh, so you want to try and get those burned down or dried up so that they go through the combine better, cut better and go through the combine better. The other reason is all these crops are indeterminate crops. So dry pea, lentil, chickpea, meaning if they have moisture and warmth, they just keep growing. So especially over the Palouse, we have quite a variation in topography. So the hillsides might be dry and everything's ripe, but you get down into the valley and there's more moisture down there and the crop still stays green. And so your, your stuff on the hills ready to harvest, your stuff at the bottom isn't. And so you can also apply a desiccant to try to even up that ripening so that you can harvest the field all at once rather than go out there and have to patch in different parts of the field as it matures. So let's talk about the individual tools available for desiccation or what we'll also refer to as harvest aid. Then we'll go into more of the pros and cons of these major options. Well, you know, there's a number of products uh, out there. Big one that's been used a fair bit, but is starting to get some um, have some problems with it would be glyphosate. So it's it doesn't it doesn't burn down real quickly. It's probably slower than the other products, but it does a pretty good job of taking down good sized weeds and then also mature evening up the maturity of the crop. But glyphosate, there are some issues with that, um, at least uh, in the press. The consumers don't seem to want it, and so the industry's shying away from it. And then there's these other products that have more of a burn down, more rapid burn, things like um, Carfentrazone, sold uh, under trade name of AIM. Uh, there's Paraquat, sold as Gramoxone, some other trade names, uh, Sharpen, which is Saflufenacil, and Flumioxazin, sold under the name of Valor and some other names. So these products can be applied. They, they uh, provide fairly quick burn down. Coverage is really important with that, though. Unlike glyphosate, which is a translocated herbicide, so you just have to get some drops somewhere on the plant, and they'll translocate to where they need. These things only, they don't translocate, so they only uh, affect the parts of the plant that they touch. So you want to have really good coverage. So you want to have spray in higher gallonages, probably preferred ground application to uh, air application for burn down. So a number of products that can be used. And like I said, glyphosate is, 
has some problems. Gramoxone has some issues of its own. It's the only herbicide that has a skull and crossbones on it. So it's, uh, it can be fairly toxic to humans and they have to be closed containers. You have to have uh, the right equipment on. You have to, only people with uh, certified licenses can apply it. So you can't even oversee it with a lot of herbicides. As long as you're overseeing the person putting it on, they can put it on, but that's not so with Gramoxone anymore. So that may have some issues. It actually is one of the better products for burn down. It burns quickly and the plants stay burned down pretty well, but they have these other issues with them. So that's why I often tell growers, you know, the, the best thing to do is do the best job you can of controlling the weeds before you get to harvest so that you uh, don't have to deal with the harvest aid treatments. Drew says it's important to look into the harvest intervals for each of these products because they're not all the same. And to keep in mind that a product like AIM, for example, is not labeled for use in lentils. This just reiterates the point again that you should always, always check labels before using any of these types of tools. I asked Drew to expand just a little bit more on the pros and cons of these options. The benefit of, of Roundup is it's a translocated herbicide, so coverage isn't nearly as important. So growers can um, go out with lower gallonages, which allows them to treat more acres uh, with less water, so less trips back to fill up the tank. Uh, it also has low cost, uh, and it is quite effective on knocking back weeds. It does take longer. It tends to take 10 days to two weeks to get the job done, whereas these other products that are more desiccating get the job done more quickly, uh, but maybe not quite as effectively. And again, glyphosate is is a lower cost product um, than many of these. The other products are not translocated, so they're contact herbicides. So for them to work effectively, you need to apply them in higher carrier volumes. A lot of Labels suggest 10 to 15 gallons per acre, and I would say you'd be better at 20 gallons per acre for getting better coverage. So more trips back to fill up the tank, which slows down progress, and slightly higher expense and not quite as active or effective, perhaps, as glyphosate or gramoxone. One problem with these harvest aid products, just as a category, Drew says, is they can be relatively inconsistent. Some years, these harvest aids work quite well. And in other years, whether it's because of, you know, the plants are really hardened off due to drought or or what it is, I'm not sure I can put my finger on all of it, but some years they work great and some years they don't. So just a consistency issue, I guess. And, but it's hard to know when they're going to work and when they're not. And, and, and I think, you know, what I mentioned at the beginning, uh, your best option is to try to avoid the need for it. And you do that by establishing a, a competitive stand of your crop. So I mentioned earlier, they aren't real competitive crops, but you can increase their competitiveness by planting towards the higher side of the recommended seeding rate, getting more plants out there to compete. Uh, narrowing rows up, if, if that's a possibility, to allow them to shade the row more quickly, and then using good crop rotation. So the weeds that tend to be a problem in our pulse crops tend to be the broadleaf weeds. Broadleaf weeds are fairly easily controlled in grass crops like wheat. So have a couple years of a grass crop and then come in with pulses. 
hopefully you can clean up a lot of your broad leaves in those two years in the grass crop before you come into the the pulse or the broadleaf crop. So doing some of these things uh, can be important. Don't get too cheap uh, on your pre-emergence herbicides. Use good pre-emergence herbicide program. We found uh, putting down a product like Spartan early helps increase the chances of getting enough precipitation on it to activate it and give you good weed control. If you wait a little bit longer to planting time, sometimes it's too dry afterwards. Spartan seems to hang in there if you put it down a three, four weeks ahead of time, and you have a much greater chance of catching moisture at that time. So all these things to try to do a better job of weed control in your crop may help you avoid the need for the harvest aid treatment later. Drew mentioned broadleaf weeds there because they're a major problem in pulses. When I asked him what the industry needs next in order to move forward, this was actually the first issue that came to mind. You know, the real um, ask from, from the industry and growers is they'd like to have some uh, post-emergence broadleaf weed control options for impulse crops. There is one tough that uh, is coming along. It's a product that was in the marketplace maybe 30 years ago, and then the registration was dropped by the manufacturer, and it's been picked up by a company in Belgium, and they're working on getting a Section 3 for use in pulses. We keep hearing it's it won't be too much longer. Maybe we'll have it for next year. I think they've applied for a Section 18 emergency use. I don't know if that's going to come through or not, but uh, that would be one thing. And finding other post-emergence products, because again, a lot of growers in some years, they put out the pre-emergence herbicides. It's not that they got cheap and, and didn't do it, but they just didn't get the rain to activate it after planting. And then they still have weed problems. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Drew Lyon and to Kevin Buxa for taking time to be part of the Growing Pulse Crops podcast. We still have a lot of great information coming your way throughout the 2020 growing season. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast and tell a friend who might also be interested in pulses. You can find all of the old episodes over at www.growingpulsecrops.com. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the North Central IPM Center. We're releasing two of these every month throughout the growing season, so we look forward to bringing you your next episode very soon.